Welcome to Wolves and Wheat Podcast, a podcast about the interconnections between biology and history. I'm one of your co-hosts, William. And I'm the other co-host, Balint. If you're interested in the topics we talk about and want to dive in further, you can find links and show notes on our website, www.wolvesandwheatpodcast.com. Or if you have questions or comments, reach out to us through email at wolvesandwheatpodcast at gmail.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. So welcome back to a long overdue new episode of Wolves and Wheat Podcast. This is Volume 1, Episode 5, Our Daily Bread. During this episode, we will discuss the unique speciation of common wheat, as well as other types of genetic changes that occurred during the domestication of wheat and barley, and what underpins the phenotypic differences between wild and domesticated species. The reason why common wheat is so unique is because it is an allohexaploid, which we will show is not usual when it comes to domesticated species. And the main trait changes that we will talk about include threshability, range expansion, which includes photoperiod response, flowering and vernalization, seed dormancy, and yield and quality, which we'll talk about grain size and grain number. So first up, let's talk about common wheat. So you mentioned that uh, it's kind of unique because it's an allohexaploid. Uh, so what does this really mean and how, what makes this so different from other types of domesticated plants? Well, first of all, there are many different types of wheat. And the three most common are common wheat, or Triticum estivum, durum wheat, or Triticum turgidum subspecies durum, and other ancient wheat varieties. But this episode will mostly just focus on common wheat. And as we'll see later on in this episode with barley and in later episodes, not all crops change their ploidy levels between their wild progenitors and the current domesticated species. And what this means is that ploidy level means how many sets of chromosome a species has. So, for example, humans are a diploid species, which means that we have two sets of chromosomes, one from each biological parent. And the thing about wheat is not just common wheat, but wheats in general have a wide range of ploidy levels. So they can range anywhere from diploid to tetraploid to hexaploid to allohexaploid, which common wheat is. So what makes common wheat so unique being an allohexaploid is that it has six total pairs of chromosomes, and two of these chromosome sets are from three different species. So... For for us humans, this sounds very alien because both humans and most of the animal kingdom only have two sets of chromosomes. Uh, and the interesting thing is that plants actually have uh, quite a larger variation of, of chromosome sets. So it's quite common for many plant species that closely related species often hybridize with each other and uh, either gain extra chromosomes or lose some of them. And uh, the what I wanted to ask is, how did this allohexaploid hybridization occur in the case of wheat? So first of all, common wheat is thought to have arose due to a natural hybridization of T. turgidium or emmer wheat, and Agalops tauschi, which is a wild wheat species. And what's interesting with this is that Emmer wheat already had a different ploidy level. It was already a tetraploid that occurred in, uh, naturally. So a lot of these wheat species had hybridization events that occurred way before domestication. So not much is, is known about them. But as you said, it, it's pretty common in the plant kingdom 
to have more than than one pair or two sets of chromosomes. So common wheat's um, uh, female progenitor, emmer wheat, was already tetraploid in nature and already had non-brittle reikis, which were present in wild populations, which, as we'll talk about later, um, influences the threshability of the wheat. So one of these um, non-brittle populations of the species that was used, uh, that was domesticated, ended up hybridizing with a wild wheat species, a Taoshi. And this species, this common wheat, only exists in its cultivar form, and there are no wild populations, no records of wild populations of, of common wheat. So the speciation, this hybridization event, most likely started when emmer wheat migrated northwards, along with the expansion of, of all of agriculture out of the Fertile Crescent. And then it eventually came into contact with this wild Atauchi species, which was the male progenitor. So I'm guessing that there must be some kind of either archaeological or genetic evidence or both of, of these hybridization events. Uh, do we know how many times it occurred and where it occurred approximately? So we don't have exact information on how many times, when and where exactly, but we do have pretty good guesses for answers to those questions. Um, but one of the reasons why it's very unclear how many times and where exactly this first hybridization speciation event occurred is mostly due to the wide natural range of A. Taushi because it spans from central Eurasia to northern Syria and southern Turkey to western China, and its most genetic and morphological diverse area is in the Transcaucus and southern Caspian coastal region. And this Transcaucus and southern Caspian coastal region is actually the most interesting region um, in terms of the Atauchi range, because this is where it's... it's um, where it's hypothesized that this hybridization and the uh, speciation event most likely occurred um, because it is in the northeastern uh, portion of the Fertile Crescent. And it also, due to DNA comparative analysis, um, this area, it's been shown that the Atauchi has the most similar uh, genome to the Atauchi part of the uh, common wheat genome. Um, and as in terms of when this happened, the best estimate is that about 8,600 years to 7,800 years before present, somewhere in uh, southeastern Turkey, the first evidence of hexaploid wheat was found. Um, so it's the best uh, estimation for, for when these events might have started to occur. Okay, so we have like a reasonably good guess of when and where and how it happened. But obviously, we can't pinpoint it accurately uh, or completely accurately. But I think it's uh, fascinating to see these interactions between these different species and subspecies and how they res resulted in wildfire key staple crops even today. So I think it would be interesting to see how wheat compares to barley and other species that did not have such a ploidy change. Because unlike wheat, domesticated barley or Hordeum vulgare has been shown to be of monophyletic origin from the wild progenitor, uh, progenitor Hordem spontaneum, and it did not undergo any ploidy change that uh, you just discussed at length uh, when it comes to wheat. So in the case of barley, it's a lot more simple and straightforward. So 
uh, it evolves from a wild progenitor without any weird crossing, uh, hybridization things, without any ploidy change. So this really shows that wheat is more unique uh, in in how it came to be become a domesticated crop, and uh, it's more like an outlier rather than the rule. Yeah, exactly. Wheat is so interesting because of how many of these hybridization and speciation events just occurred naturally without any human intervention, and how just because of humans changing their own range and being in contact with other populations how taking what had already been a domesticated wheat and bringing it to a whole new range um, really changed the whole trajectory, really, of, of, of human humans and, and their crops with the evolution of, of common wheat. And what is so interesting is that, exactly, barley and wheat are, are on kind of opposite ends of the evolutionary spectrum in terms of their ploidy. And I think spectrum is also a good word to use when it comes to wheat because there's so many different um, ploidy levels, like we talked about, so many different speciation events and all these things, and they're always constantly occurring. So it's not like you just have species A and species B, and that's how they've always been, how they always will be. They're always constantly cross-pollinating and interbreeding, crossbreeding, um, back-crossing, and all these other things that just create such a huge genetic diversity in terms of, of wheat species. And what I also find fascinating is, like I said, there's such a huge difference in, in the evolution of, of wheat and barley, at least uh, the domesticated um, crops. But at the same time, obviously, they had to undergo uh, similar genetic changes to be able to expand to the ranges that they did and be good uh, candidates for domestication and also have the ability to evolve past what they currently, what they were when they started domestication. Um, so even though these crops were so like different in their evolution, they still had to do these things similarly, obviously. So I think it'd be interesting to see how these uh, genetic changes in these traits compare between wheat and barley. Yeah, definitely. So most genes are responsible for the acquisition of these traits can actually be mapped to the same genomic locations. So that means that these genes are located in the same regions of the same chromosomes in both wheat and barley. And interestingly, it do uh, doesn't just apply across wheat and barley, but also between the different uh, original genomes that uh, hexaploid wheat contains. So this indicates that Similar genes uh, were mutated uh, or underwent changes in, in both species. And one of the traits that changed uh, is called threshability, which basically it means how easy or difficult it is to remove the hulls from the seeds. And hulls in cereals are the remnants of the flower brands that surround the seed. And in wheat, most aforementioned domesticated versions, such as common wheat or emmer wheat or durum wheat, uh, these ones all are all free threshing, which means that it's relatively easy to remove these hulls, except, interestingly, einkorn. So the crossing of emmer wheat and einkorn resulted in better threshability because common wheat inherited the free threshing trait from emmer wheat, 
but it also inherited their survival traits from einkorn because einkorn can survive on cooler soils, so soils with uh, lower nutrient contents. Uh, so uh, this was uh, this was like a very beneficial uh, hybridization uh, when it comes to cultivating wheat. And most barley variants are non-threshing, which means that uh, it's very difficult or almost impossible to separate the hulls from the seeds. However, there are some so-called naked variants uh, with no hulls at all. And on an interesting side note, there is a gene called Thresh1, which can facilitate the removal of the ons and rachis remnants from the spikelet, which are just parts of the plant that surround the seed, basically, without going into too much detail in plant anatomy. Uh, but this is different from wheat threshability, uh, where we are removing the hulls. Uh, and this is a result of convergent evolution rather than exact homology. For those that are unfamiliar, homology just means that there's a trait that a common ancestor had that was passed down to the uh, related species. And convergent evolution means that there is a similar process or mechanism that evolved separately at separate times in different species. So I think it's interesting that threshability became a very important domestication trait in wheat, but not so much in barley. And it led to um, the loss of, of seed dormancy for, for wheat, which helped in the crop yield. Um, but we also mentioned that there are a lot of, of suites of genes that had to change in order for the plants to adapt to the ranges that, that humans were introducing them to. So what are some of the genetic changes plants had to undergo to uh, have traits to expand their range? Yeah, so basically range expansion is an umbrella term uh, which encompasses what uh, the changes that were needed uh, for both wheat and barley to withstand other climates rather than the climate of their original habitat. And uh, the first one that we mentioned is follow periods and follow sensitivity, so let's start with that. Uh, so plants, just like animals, have circadian rhythms that are affected by the uh, amount of daylight hours. And circadian rhythms regulate a lot of functions in plants, such as the opening and closing of stomata on the leaves, uh, various biosynthetic pathways, and organ formation, tissue growth, and so on. So one thing that is regulated by the full period length is flowering. So many plants use it kind of uh, like a trigger or a cue uh, for the optimal time of the year to produce and pollinate flowers. So the plant senses the amount of sunlight hours, and if that exceeds a certain threshold, then the uh, the plant starts to produce flowers and starts re reproducing. Uh, in barley, uh, the gene that regulates this the most, or the gene that is responsible for full period sensitivity is called PPDH1. The, G, uh, the name itself is not super important. What's more important is that its mutation causes lower full period response, which means that flowering can occur even when the days are shorter, which means that barley this way can become more adaptable to latitudes closer to the poles than uh, its original habitat in the fertile crescent. And in hexaploid wheat, there's also orthologs of this gene, so the equivalents of this gene in all three genomes of hexaploid wheat. 
So uh, mutations of this gene in the case of both crops were prerequisites of domestication. And uh, in barley, there are some other genes that regulate flowering, such as the early flowering 3, or ALF3, and the early maturity 8, or EAM8, uh, genes. But these ones appear to have undergone mutation after domestication, so these would fall under crop evolution rather than domestication traits. So this is something that we mentioned in earlier episodes, that there's a difference between traits that were acquired through mutations before humans started to domesticate them, uh, and they domesticated them specifically because these plants had these traits. Uh, and crop evolution is changes and traits that were acquired by the plants that were already being, domest uh, being cultivated and produced by humans. Yeah, I think that shows a good dichotomy and, and helps highlight the whole domestication before cultivation um, theory that we talked about in the last episode. Um, because, yeah, exactly, there's some traits that had to be present in wild populations in order for the humans to effectively cultivate and, and domesticate them. And then there are other traits that over time humans began to, to fix in these populations. So that, I think that's a good overview about um, some of the mutations needed in order for range expansion due to photoreceptive periods. Um, and another thing you mentioned is vernalization. Uh, so first of all, I think all of us would appreciate if you tell us exactly what vernalization is. And then second, um, how is this trait uh, modified during domestication? Yeah, of course. So uh, a little sidetrack into the realm of linguistics. So vernalization comes from the Latin word vernalis, which means of the spring or related to spring. And what it means is that a plant has to undergo a cold period, so winter, before it can start its reproductive processes. Uh, this is quite common in plants that live in temperate climates, so yeah, in plants that experience a cold season. And both wheat and barley have three main genes that impact vernalization, uh, which are the aptly named vernalization 1, vernalization 2, and vernalization 3 genes. And these three genes form a negative regulation cascade in a way that the first gene downregulates the second gene, which downregulates the third gene. Yeah, so for those that may not be familiar with, with signaling um, cascades and what those are, so basically the, the third gene, the VRN3, is the gene that helps to promote the growth of reproductive organs and tissues, but it's inhibited by VRN2, which is inhibited by VRN1. So what this means is that when VRN1 is being ex expressed, it's inhibiting VRN2, which is allowing VRN3 to then be expressed, which then promotes the growth of the reproductive organs and tissues. But when VRN1 is downregulated and not expressed, then VR VRN2 is expressed, which then inhibits the expression of VRN3, which means that there's no growth of reproductive organs and tissues. Yeah, so think of it kind of like uh, sitting in a car and pressing with both the gas and the brakes, and if you let go of one, so if you let go of the brake, for example, then the car starts to speed up. But if you let go of, uh, of the gas and start pressing harder on the brake, then it stops. So there's kind of like a balancing interplay between these. 
And uh, what uh, normally happens is that the first gene, so VRN1, is only expressed uh, during the winter, so uh, only during cold temperatures, meaning that it will trigger flowering only if the plant experiences a cold period. But there are some mutant versions of this gene that are continuously expressed, meaning that the plant can start producing flowers and consequently seeds immediately without the prerequisite of a cold period. So you have an increased amount of the first gene, which causes a decrease of the second gene. So you let go of the break, basically, and that helps uh, the increase of the amount of the third gene, which uh, triggers the, the uh, reproductive organs and flowers. So this, uh, this uh, mutation is the reason behind the difference between winter types and spring types of wheat and barley. So spring types uh, can produce seeds the same year as they were sown. So you sow the seeds during the spring, and then it immediately starts producing flowers and seeds, and you can harvest it during the same year at the end of summer. And winter types uh, need to be sown during the fall, so shortly before winter, and then they experience this cold period, which eventually triggers their flowering and reproductive organ growth during the spring. And then they can be harvested almost a year after they were sown. So uh, these uh, two types, so spring types and winter types, are still uh, a major dichotomy uh, when you look at modern cultivated wheat and barley versions. So these changes in the vernalization process, together with the seed dormancy and threshability that we've discussed in earlier episodes, allowed both barley and wheat to adapt to a much wider range of climates and temperatures. And due to this, they're able to spread their cultivation to a much larger area in Eurasian, um, along with the, the human expansion. But you also mentioned that there's some genes that also can influence the crop yield. Um, what are some of these genes and mutations that, that allow crops to be more uh, economically beneficial? Yeah, so uh, crop yield traits uh, are, for example, seed size and number of seeds. And uh, an interesting thing that I read about barley is that wild progenitors and most, domestic, most domesticated variants as well contain only two rows of seeds. However, some domesticated versions have six rows of seeds. And this is a huge potential benefit since you can, uh, in theory at least, uh, triple the amount you can harvest. But in practice, obviously, there's a lot of other factors that will influence this, such as soil quality, sunlight, rain, pests, uh, winds even, and so on. Yeah, exactly. Because if if having six rows is way more advantageous over two, then you would imagine that the six row populations would take over the domesticated populations. But the fact that there's still two row domesticated barley probably shows that the six row version isn't really as economically feasible as one might think. So then I think it'd be interesting, did, did, did this mutation to six rows occur just once or did it happen multiple times? It actually occurred on three separate occasions, at least that's what we know of. Um, but yeah, as, as you mentioned, I think 
uh, it, it's not really an advantage over the, the two road variants, so call it, this is why it hasn't become the dominant version. Uh, it is just an interesting thing that I found that uh, this, this is a, an example of a mutation that changes the number of seeds, that basically triples the number of rows that barley has. Yeah, so while maybe for barley it might not be advantageous, there could be other plant species that have similar mutations that are beneficial. Yes, exactly. So then the the number of, of rows of seeds, and as we mentioned before, the seed size and the crop yield traits, so those relate to the quantity of, of the crop yield. Um, but in earlier episodes, we kind of intimated that due to domestication, there was also a change and an increase in the nutritional content of some of these species. Are there any examples of, of this change in nutritional content? Yeah, so uh, these, uh, these traits or contents are, are controlled by so-called quality genes, uh, which influence end-use traits, so to say. So traits related to, for example, milling, baking, or malting. And a good example of this would be, for example, uh, the protein content in barley which uh, there's a mutation that causes the protein content to be a lot lower than in, in wild uh, progenitors. And this is advantageous for malting because malting requires a higher sugar content. But in the wild, it would be very disadvantageous because uh, you need a sufficient amount of protein content in the seed to, uh, to make germination uh, efficient. But uh, certain domesticated versions of barley have a lot lower protein content and a lot higher relative sugar content. Another example would be wheat genes, known as prolamines or gluten genes, which influence baking quality through the amount and the co composition of gluten proteins found in the seeds. Um, and for the lack of time and in order not to sidetrack this whole episode, and just to try to focus on the main topic here, which is domestication. We will not dive into uh, nutrition as a topic here, but uh, we might do so in a later episode when we, we discuss uh, the nutritional changes that occurred uh, in various domesticated plants. Yeah, I think it's a good overview of what we've been trying to emphasize and that traits that were seen in the wild that were then uh, used as the cultivars in domestic domesticated um, species, and then the traits that over time humans were, like you said, kind of tinkering with, and then led to completely different evolution in, in species um, species packages. And so now you can see why you, wheat is such a unique species in the domestication process, and how its multiple ploidy uh, levels and and genetic variation and diversity really comes into play and is unique from a lot of other cultivated species. But at the same time, even with these huge evolutionary differences, obviously the plants still needed to uh, evolve the same type of mechanisms, similar mechanisms in order to appropriately adapt to the expansion uh, range that they're undergoing due to human intervention. And speaking of the expanded ranges, that'll be the topic of our next episode, where we'll go a bit more into detail about what crops expanded their range when and how, and where they ended up eventually settling. So thank you for joining our show again.
and we hope you're ready for the next episode. Hey, 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 hey. Wolves and wheat every day.